Welcome to Step 1 Success Stories by Physio, Episode 17. You got to really take a hard look at why you're getting questions wrong so you can figure out, is this a knowledge gap issue? Is this a test-taking strategy issue or something else? You're listening to Step 1 Success Stories by Physio, the playbook of those who dominated the USMLE. If you want to learn how to excel on Step 1 and get into the residency of your choice, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join the thousands of others who have mastered step one concepts using physio.com. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode. Today we interview Andrew Goetz, who is a second year ENT resident. And to help me with this interview, I'm here with my co-host, Red Thompson. How's it going, man? So good. What's the latest with you? Let's see. Well, recently it was my son Benton's birthday. Oh, that was such a blast. We went to the mall and got some pretty awesome Legos, went to this little Lego store and he picked out this awesome Ninjago Lego set (laughs) and he was just so excited. So we built that together and that was pretty fun. And then just enjoyed some time going to the pool, eating pizza and just having a good time. So that's the latest with me, I guess. That's awesome. You know, I think sometimes kids' birthdays can be fun for the parents. I think a lot of times it's kind of a chore for the parents. But sometimes it can be fun, especially when your kid's somewhat interested in something that you care about, like Legos. That can be a fun thing. And then you almost get this excuse to relax. Yeah. Because it's like for somebody else, kind of gives you permission to be like, okay, I'm going to chill and eat cake. (laughs) I think that's really cool. My youngest daughter is turning one today. And so we've got like a little birthday party, keeping it minimal, not buying her anything. She hasn't earned anything yet. (laughs) She's only one. (laughs) No presents for you. (laughs) Like... This is a celebration of us as parents surviving you and your crappy sleep for an entire year. Dude, uh, this is proof for her in the future. She's going to be like, you didn't give me any presents? Look, I can look back on this episode. You say it right here, dad. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'd be impressed if she listened to all these podcast episodes when she's old enough to understand anything that we're saying. I'd be like, you know what? I'm, I'm impressed that you listen to those. I'll give you a present now just because you listen to those. <laughs> so today's guest, as Michael mentioned, is Drew Goats. He's 30 years old and he's a second year ENT resident at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And he scored a 254 on step one. What was interesting about this episode is his class in medical school was the first to have this new curriculum in which they would do their third year rotations before taking step one. What was so interesting to me was just his approach. He didn't have upperclassmen to say, this is how you should approach it. This is how much you should be balancing step one study with your shelf exams. He didn't have anybody like that who had done this before him. Yet he still just had this really good attitude and a good mindset along with good techniques that I think can really be applied to any situation that anybody finds themselves in. And it was just pretty inspiring. I really liked the things that he had to say. And I think that all of you listeners will learn a lot from his experience and you'll be able to apply that to your situation. So let's bring him on. All right, Drew, welcome to the show, man. We're super excited to have you on today. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We actually go way back, (laughs) the three of us, we went to Utah Valley University together. And that's kind of how we reached out and got Drew on the podcast. But he's a second year resident at Mayo doing his ENT stuff. So we appreciate your time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to hear from you guys. Like you said, we go back quite a ways and had lots of good times in undergrad together. And it's cool to see everything that you're doing and get a chance to catch up. Yeah, likewise. With most of our guests, we ask about what got you interested in medicine and a little bit of background about yourself. So let's start there if that's all right with you. 
Sure. I do not come from a medical family. I grew up in Utah, have lots of siblings. I'm 11th in the family and nobody had tried medicine before. So I didn't have a whole lot of career advice or things like that or background in medicine. It wasn't until I spent a couple of years in Columbus, Ohio, doing a mission. And I was there mostly in the suburbs of Columbus surrounding Ohio State when I started interacting with a lot of people in the medical field, not the least of which was a gentleman by the name of Brad Welling. He happened to be the ear, nose, and throat department chair at Ohio State at the time. He was a really good mentor to me and somebody I looked up to a lot, both from a personal family standpoint, you know, we shared the same religion and I got to know him through that, but I also really admired him professionally and got to know his family well. So that was what really piqued my interest in medicine was these really great people that had entered my life and set a good example for what I wanted out of life. And I was intrigued at that point. I started considering medicine as a career path through shadowing and things like that. And the more I progressed and learned about it, the more I felt like it was a good fit. I had some doubts and trepidation at first about medicine as being something unknown to me. I kind of considered it as being something for only rich kids or smart kids. And I didn't really consider myself either one of those things. But the more I thought about things, you know, I wanted a career that was meaningful every day, day in and day out. I wanted to be able to look back and say that I made a difference and that I enjoyed it. And during that time, trying to make these decisions, I met my future wife and we were dating and she was a good advocate for me and kind of a cheerleader and a coach in a lot of ways. She pushed me to really reach my potential and helped me get past some of that self-doubt. So I guess I'd say to people that are worried about not being good enough or smart enough for medicine, find the people that are in your corner and listen to those voices and not your internal doubts. That was definitely important for me. So that's what kind of got me interested in medicine. So honestly, I started pursuing that as an undergrad and moving toward that direction as a pre-med. I didn't like the term pre-med, so I told myself I was a biochemistry major with the plan of going to medical school and doing all the prereqs. But I really thought from the beginning I liked ENT because I had a couple of mentors who were in the field. And so I actually really strongly considered that from the get-go in selecting a medical school in making preparations and some of my pre-med activities and things like that. So that set the trajectory for going to med school and also ultimately what I picked as far as a specialty too. I rubbed shoulders with you quite a bit at Utah Valley University as a tutor. You know, we were both academic tutors at the time. You always seemed very bright to me and it was fun working with you at the time. I looked up to you a lot. So I'm sure that Mayo's really thrilled to have such a good intelligent person in their program. So that's awesome. Let's talk a little bit more about once you got into medical school, you obviously did really well in undergrad and eventually got into the University of Iowa. Can you talk to us a little bit about that in the first few days or first few weeks of medical school and what that experience was like for you? Yeah, I picked Iowa not because I had tons of options and I was like looking at all of my wonderful choices. I honestly had limited choices in some ways, but I also really liked Iowa because of the ENT program. And so I went there excited about that idea, but also having really no other experience living in the Midwest or any other experience living in the cornfields of Iowa, a frame of reference. So I'd say I described my first few days of medical school as being very disorienting and intimidating. I remember having a lot of anxiety about the orientation week 
an entire week with 150 people I'd never met before who were really bright was really intimidating to me. So that first little bit, just kind of getting my bearings and getting settled in medical school was more difficult than I expected. I had a wife that I mentioned before, and we had a couple little kids at that time. So we had relocated our lives and we're still trying to get lots of things figured out. I felt the push and pull and confusion associated with that transition. And it was a little bit tough, both from the social standpoint, just trying to figure out how I fit in among the groups in medical school, but also just the academic burden was new and a bit intimidating. It's exciting all at the same time. But I certainly remember that transition being a little bit rockier than I expected. Related to academics, I was pleasantly surprised at how my undergrad had prepared me for medical school and the rigor of medical school. The three of us went to maybe a lesser known undergraduate institution, but one that we all have a lot of pride in, I think. And I was pleasantly surprised that I was up to snuff as far as that was concerned and I was prepared, but just needed to continue to get acclimated to the new study load. There were some aspects that were really daunting and really terrifying. But then in other ways, I felt very reassured and comfortable because I felt like I had been well prepared. And so I think at different points in time, I had varying levels of confidence. But I do remember those first couple of weeks requiring a lot of encouragement by my loved ones and a lot of reminders for myself to remember why I wanted to do this thing. It's interesting that you specifically mentioned stress during that orientation week. You're the second person actually that mentioned how stressful orientation week can be. <laughs> and it's something that we gloss over sometimes. And I think even people in administration at any med school are always thinking this orientation week is something to just really like calm the students down, like help them realize that they've got this and can handle things. But then it actually ends up being super stressful as you're just trying to get ready. And you're thinking about the whole med school curriculum all at once and kind of overwhelming. The other thing that's super interesting about what you said is that you were able to conquer that imposter syndrome that so many people experience where you first start out and you're surrounded by a bunch of brilliant people, but then you were able to recognize that you were prepared. And I think that that's the cool thing to remember. And if I could go back, I wish that I could internalize that idea earlier. And it seems like a lot of students could benefit from that as well, because I think nearly everybody gets a little intimidated when they start that new life, this new curriculum. And if they can follow your example, just remember that they got there for a reason. And just like you, you're ready to handle these new challenges and can excel, obviously. It's cool to hear that. Yeah, I wish I could say it went away and I just was done with that. But truth is, I feel like throughout my time in medicine, I've had to constantly remind myself that. And like I said, sometimes it takes loved ones and people around you to remind you, but arriving to residency was in a lot of ways similar and maybe even a little bit more profound for me, the imposter syndrome. So it does creep back on occasion. And even still, you know, we're never totally immune to that feeling. And I'm not sure that it's unique to medicine, but I think it's pretty apparent for a lot of us. So I will say that it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's like, oh yeah, now I fit in and things are all better. So I think it's something to keep in mind that it's a normal, natural feeling to feel out of place, to feel intimidated, but you can cope with it and you can get better at reducing the impacts of that. Yeah, medicine definitely has a way of stretching you to the limits and making you feel inadequate. It's a tough field. There's so much to learn. And I think every step of the way, it's a little overwhelming for you. <laughs> you tackle first year and it's like, wow, that was hard. And then second year and it's like, wow, that was harder. And then you go to third year and 
wow, that was even harder. <laughs> and then it just keeps on going. And every step of the way, you're adding on these extra layers. And uh, I'm sure you can attest to that once you get into residency. It has that similar aspect to it, I guess. That's cool, though, that you are obviously doing well and overcoming that feeling of imposter syndrome and you continue to excel and continue to press forward. Let's talk a little bit more about after those first few weeks, like the first few months, first semester, or for even first year of medical school. And once you kind of got through that like shock moment, what did your curriculum look like exactly? And how did you start going about studying for classes? And did you even really think about step one at that time? It's challenging. Every medical school is going to have a little bit different curriculum as you interview there, research the schools. I think most of them have some unique aspect of their curriculum, and my medical school is no different. I happen to be in the first class that went through revamped curriculum. We did a modified schedule of 18 months of didactics, followed by a year of our core clinical rotations. So basically, we started in the hospital six months earlier than the traditional medical school model. And we took step one after that. So that was halfway through third year in January of that year. So that's a little bit about the kind of structure of of how things went. My philosophy about that, if you're curious, I felt like I could really adjust and thrive in really any curriculum. I didn't feel like there was one specific right way to do it. If there was, probably all the medical schools would do that thing. The fact that there's a lot of different curricula makes sense to me that there's probably more than one way to train a doctor. And so I just tried to embrace this new curriculum best I could. So we did the normal basic sciences, you know, anatomy, biochemistry, and physiology, all those types of things. Ours was what they call the mechanisms-based curriculum. So we didn't necessarily just study biochemistry, and we didn't just study physiology or pathology. We actually tried to study them by mechanisms of disease, which was an interesting concept. I don't think it's worth belaboring the details, but it was challenging in some ways. It was beneficial in some ways, but I think getting used to studying in medical school was a big adjustment. I think it is for most of us. I feel like I cycled through several different study strategies and pretty much tried anything I could. I probably could have been a little bit more consistent and just stuck with the same thing. But I tried a lot of different things. I tried the whole read everything a million times with a highlighter and six different highlighter pens. That didn't work so well for me. So I abandoned that pretty early on. I also tried to take an old school approach and attend class. My medical school didn't have a mandatory attendance policy, but I prided myself on being a class attender for really the first probably nine months of classes. And then it was at one point deciding to take an experiment and decided not to go to class and just watch the lectures from the library. And I actually found that to be pretty helpful. I think I would have benefited doing that sooner. Just with my personal learning style, it was nice to be able to review things to take it a little bit slower and to go through things more than once in an audio format. I tried all sorts of stuff. I tried listening to lectures while I went running. During the first couple of years of medical school, I got really into running and was running marathon races and ultra marathon distance races. And so I did some long runs listening to lots of boring lectures. I don't feel like I got a lot of retention from that, but I tried it. I also tried the whole uh, walking on a treadmill and trying to read and write notes, and that didn't work so well either. What I ended up finding was the most helpful thing for me in studying for both step one, as well as just my regular classes, was a combination of things. I really felt like I did well from diagramming out lectures 
in kind of a more conceptual way. I didn't necessarily just copy notes or write notes, but rather I made flow sheets and diagrams that helped me to frame whatever the content was. And I tried to make those on just a blank sheet of paper to kind of understand the concepts. That worked pretty well for the last probably eight or nine months of my didactics. So I adapted that type of study. And then I started doing more and more as time went on, trying to incorporate questions into my study habits. I think that study and question repetition is really important for retention. I was never great at flashcard making. I tried that for a while. I just couldn't keep up with writing all the flashcards and studying them all at the same time. But I did use a few pre-made flashcard decks as part of that question answering process. So I use kind of a combination of some flashcards and some question banks to help solidify my studying. So yeah, that was kind of how I approached the first couple of years as far as the didactics and that one specifically, but I just want to pause really quick and let everybody just appreciate the fact that you were able to rattle off these details of your curricula or didactic experience and you're a second year ENT resident. I just want everybody to appreciate how long ago that was for you. <laughs> and the fact that you were able to like whip out all these details is so cool. So I've got a few questions about what you experienced. Just want to dive in there. With pre-made flashcards, what were you using exactly? I tried Anki for a while. There's some pretty good decks in Anki that I think people got good success with. Ultimately, what I landed on was the Osmosis platform. I wished I could have gotten my whole medical school on board with Osmosis. Just briefly, what it is, is it's an online platform. You can upload all of your class notes, you can upload any notes that you've taken and it kind of analyzes those notes and tries to dig out relevant concepts. And it's a crowdsource platform, so you can make flashcards and share them both with your medical school classmates as well as with anybody who uses the platform. They also have similar functions for making questions and flashcards. So they had a deck that I tended to like because Oftentimes, you know, it's not a perfect system. They're kind of improving all the time, but oftentimes they would pop up the flashcards and questions that were relevant to the content I was studying. I think leading up to step one, that was probably where I focused more and more on my time and attention was using that platform to the best of my ability and trying to maximize the benefit from that. I think it's an interesting model, crowdsourcing among your classmates. It's like a next level of Google Drive, if you will. You can share documents, you can share notes, you can share all sorts of things. Unfortunately, it wasn't really widely adopted by my medical school class because I think there would have been some benefit to that. But that was primarily the flashcard source that I ended on because Anki was, there was just so many cards and not always things that I needed to review. And I just felt like I couldn't keep up with the daunting number of flashcards. So having it a little bit more focused on subject matter was helpful for me. The other thing I'll say is I worked for a little bit for osmosis. And I think you guys can probably comment on this too, having done some work in the education space. I really enjoy education in general, and I liked the process of teaching and learning. And so, like I said, I worked for osmosis. I was a content editor for them. I made suggestions along the way through their flashcards as well as wrote lots of questions for their question bank. And I think that's a really valuable part of studying is reproducing your knowledge and trying to teach something. I think that that's a huge part of retaining something and learning something. And you guys can speak to that better than me because you've put a lot more time and thought into 
designing curricula and trying to teach and educate. But I do think that there's a lot of value in that from a learning perspective, being able to simplify concepts, being able to explain them, write relevant questions. All of those skills are really important if you're talking about just retaining information and being a good student. So that was really helpful for me. I think that having the opportunity to just dive in and try to create content in a form of questions or editing or just thinking critically about material so that you can teach it well is something you just learn so much from. And I think that's cool that you had that experience helping with osmosis. I think that's awesome. And what's super interesting to me is that you used osmosis in a way that is really not super popular right now. Like that mode of taking people's curriculum from class and then shoving it through osmosis was like a cool idea. I remember that back in 2015, 2016. And it's something that I don't know if it's like falling flat, but it's certainly not something that osmosis is promoting. It doesn't seem to have caught on, you know? I think there are some errors with the whatever software they're using. But like I said, I thought it was an interesting idea. I think we would have gotten benefit from, you know, our class shared notes and things like that, just on Google Drive or on Dropbox and stuff like that. It was a really good concept, but it takes some massive buy-in. And I think there was still some IT quirks that weren't quite worked out during that process. So I used it some, but like I said, it certainly wasn't widely adopted by my class or by most people that were studying around that time. It's an intriguing idea, but like you say, basically a good chunk of your class has to buy in or else that functionality doesn't really work too well. But let's talk a little bit more about Osmosis and some of the other resources that you used and give us a timeline of when you started to use that. Because you mentioned a bunch of resources, a bunch of things that you tried, and a lot of things didn't work. At what point did you kind of find your groove and start using Osmosis and maybe some other resources that you found helpful? So I started thinking about step one seriously about a year before I took the exam. So that was at the end of our didactics. And part of the reason for that was our medical school hosted a mock exam which was one of the USMLE sanctioned practice exams. And part of why they did that was because, one, we were the first class going through a new curriculum, and they really wanted to make sure that we were going to do well. <laughs> to be honest, you know, they had a lot riding on our success, as did we. So we took that exam. I didn't particularly prepare for that. I just wanted to see where I was at. But it gave me a really good sense for, okay, a year from now I'm taking this exam, and these are the areas where I'm strong in right now. And these are the areas where I have a lot of room for improvement. It gave me a general sense for where I needed to focus and things like that. I knew that it was a year off, but that's when I started formulating my attack plan, so to say. I took another practice test through the school about six months after that. And six months prior to our exam, we took another. And so I think that those exams provided some good checkpoints along the way to help me make a plan for studying. But the specific resources I used, Osmosis had a very simple and what I thought was really useful study one schedule that you could use. I don't know if they still have that on their platform, but it followed first aid and it followed Pathoma as well as New World. So it kind of combined those three resources along with the video series that they were developing at the time. Those were integrated into it as well. And it just gave kind of a series of things to review and it broke it down by week and by day. And the thing that I liked about it was it was adjustable because I'm not the most consistent person sometimes. And so I needed the flexibility of that schedule so that if I missed a day or if I didn't get as much done, 
I could move that forward and I could adjust the schedule. If I were to be somebody who wrote out my perfect schedule for six months, I'd probably only hit maybe 40% of the days perfectly. And then I'd be constantly having to like reassess and rewrite the schedule. And so that was a very useful tool for me was having some flexibility, but also some hard, firm commitments along the way. So those were the pillars of how I studied for step one, where it was UWorld, Pathoma, and First Aid. I think that those are super helpful resources, and you just have to develop a way to cover as much content as possible and specifically give yourself a little more time on the things where you're weaker just to help you prove your likelihood of a good score. I agree. And I, it's funny you mentioned that if you're handwriting your daily schedule during dedicated or during a six month period, like you just said, and if you have to adjust, then it's a nightmare because you have to like go and erase or, or like just recreate by hand this new study schedule, which I'm embarrassed to say was definitely my situation. I remember doing that during dedicated and I remember like sitting down to my wife. I'm like, okay, look, I didn't meet the goals to get these things done. So I'm going to redo this. And she was an elementary school teacher and she's good at that kind of stuff. And so it was like therapeutic for me to be like, look, I need to do this. I need to get all these on this calendar. And I keep missing these deadlines. And she's like, okay, let's look at this. So if you have somebody like my wife, it's super helpful. You can survive with like a handwritten schedule, but otherwise it makes sense that you use something like what you're describing. I didn't realize that osmosis had that. Typically we hear like cram fighter, that can organize those things, you know, it's pretty flexible and forgiving and you can kind of stay on track even if you like miss a little bit. And so that's kind of cool. The other question I've got is most of the students that are going to be listening to this podcast now are using Anki. And I'm curious about your situation where you used osmosis, it sounds like in the place of Anki. Did that have like a schedule that you'd stick to for the flashcards? Or what did that look like from day to day? Yes, it's a pretty similar setup. I don't remember all the very fine details about it, but it has an algorithm similar to Anki. I think it's a little bit different, but you have a stack of cards that you need to do for that day that are review cards, and then you have a stack of new concepts and things like that. And then anytime you were studying along their platform, you could add cards to your deck, say like, I want to review this. You just like click a button that it would add it to your stack. For whatever reason, I just found it a little bit easier to manage then the Anki stacks, the Anki stacks seemed to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and just give me anxiety with the number of cards I had to get through that day. The thing I liked about osmosis was that it was flexible and manageable, but also on the cards and things, there were links to the relevant concepts and questions. And so if there was one card where I'm just like, I don't even know what this card means. I want to study a little bit more in depth. Then there were links to resources that were very closely related. You know, I had page numbers for first aid and things like that. And so I found it to be a little bit less monotonous than just hammering out tons and tons of flashcards. But some people really learn that way. You know, some of my best friends in medical school who got the best scores on step one just really hammered a lot of Anki cards and they did really well. And so I don't think that there's one right or wrong answer there. I just think that people are unique and maybe I have a shorter attention span than some. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's something for everyone out there, but the functionality and the different aspects of osmosis that you're talking about seem pretty intriguing. And I could see why someone like you would want to use a platform like that. So let's recap a little bit just to make sure everyone's on the same page. So for the first 18 months of med school or so, you basically just kind of focused on your coursework. And then after that, you started third year and 
that's kind of when you started thinking more seriously about step one. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't want to get too crazy about just focusing on step one throughout my didactic time. I think step one has an important role and that it's an important test, obviously. I think that everybody has to kind of frame their experience with step one based on their goals in their career and also what it's going to mean for them long term and set a reasonable expectation, a reasonable goal for that. I think if I would have started sooner, I would have gotten burned out even quicker than I did because I feel like you will get burned out studying for step one at some point. It's just a matter of like preparing for that, managing that. And if you burn out six months before you're even going to take the test, and that's the worst problem, I think. I kind of wanted to ramp up to it. And I had to adapt to my unique curriculum, too. So we had then a year of clinical rotations where there's a lot to study for, for those shelf exams and for clinic every day or the operating room or whatever you're trying to learn, in addition to trying to retain all this information or trying to organize all this content that really wasn't going to come up much on the hospital wards, but was going to be relevant for this big exam in the back of my mind coming up. So I actually ended up probably spending a ton more money than I needed to, but I bought UWorld and I bought step one and step two, and I would work on both. I would work on step two, mostly for my shelf exams, but my goal was to get through all of UWorld as well in about six or nine months get through the entire thing and then go back through and try to get it through a second time. So that was my approach was I wanted to get through UWorld step one once, hopefully twice by the time I took the exam. So over the course of that year, that was one of the kind of more specific things that I was doing throughout that year. But like I said, I think you got to put step one into perspective as far as what your goals are, what you feel like you need long-term from that test and from that score And there's a lot of factors that play into that, your overall application and what that's going to end up looking like, as well as what specialty you want to do and how that specialty views the step one score. You know, there's a lot of variables. And I don't think that the right approach for everybody is to shoot for a 270 on step one. There are plenty of people who became very good doctors in their fields without spending all their waking moments focused on step one. You know, your situation is very unique because everyone we've interviewed so far hasn't had a curriculum like yours. It's like the traditional first two years of med school or didactics, and then you take step one, and then you move on to third year. So this is really interesting to get your perspective and some of the unique challenges that you face with this different type of curriculum. And I'm sure there are students who listen to this who have a similar curriculum. So it's cool to talk to you about this and some of the things that you encountered. So If I understand correctly, you basically were studying for step one throughout your third year. And during this time, you have to simultaneously study for your shelf exam, which will be at the end of each rotation, as well as step two. And on top of that, you're studying for step one. Is that right? Yeah. So everybody had to kind of develop their own strategy for doing that. Regardless of what your curriculum is, you're going to have to look at it and identify how you're going to approach it. And I think if you do that thoughtfully, you can find a good strategy. And even within my medical school class, there wasn't a precedent that was set by anybody. So we all were just making it up as we went. But I think you just have to be thoughtful about how you're going to plan it. And certainly people did it a variety of different ways. Some people just wanted to really hammer the shelf scores and they really wanted to not even think about step one until their dedicated study time. Other people like hardly even studied for their shelves. They were just all about, they want to do really well on step one. 
So there's a host of different approaches associated with that, but it was a little bit challenging to try and put all those pieces together because it felt like we were getting pulled in a few different directions at different points. But I will say this, like step one does have a fair bit of basic science that may not be as apparently relevant when you're on rounds or what have you in the hospital, but there's a lot of really clinical relevant items and objectives in step one. And I will say, you know, taking that test after being in the hospital for a year, there were not a few questions where I was reading the stem and I knew exactly what the diagnosis was. And I was shocked to look down and see that the question was simply like, what's the diagnosis? So I was expecting a second or third level question. And they were really simple. I was like, oh, well, I've, I've seen a patient with this exact presentation, you know, so that did help in some aspects. But probably for every one of those questions, there was some mechanistic question about a drug or a biochemical pathway that wasn't as clinically relevant. So I don't think that it's the silver bullet necessarily for like knowing all the answers on step one. But I will say like there's plenty of clinically relevant content in step one that there's a lot of overlap between the two. Like step one and step two are not mutually exclusive by any means. Totally. I remember talking to someone during my third year who had a similar type of curriculum where they did first, second, and third year, basically, and then took step one after that. And he was just talking about how great it was because kind of what you were saying, there were so many questions on his step one exam. He said that he kind of reflected back to his third year and was like, oh yeah, I encountered a patient like this. And having that context, that clinical context, seems like it would make so many questions so much easier. But I guess not having been through that personally, it's a little bit hard to say now, looking back. With the like, biochemistry and basic science stuff like i don't think anybody remembers that stuff when they have to go back and study for step one it doesn't matter if it's like six months after you did it in didactics or 18 months after you did it like pretty much everybody forgets those details and you just have to like go back and review that regardless yeah you got to work to understand and remember that regardless of the situation whether it's like yours or more traditional like most people that we interview what's super cool to me is that you are thrown in this situation where you're pioneering for your medical school this new idea, this new curriculum format, and just had this awesome attitude, obviously came out of it well, and you adapted, figured out a strategy that you thought would work, and it worked for you. And I just think that that is evidence that it doesn't matter what situation you're in, or what school you're in, or really any of the external factors that you may find influencing your situation, you can find just a way to make it work. And I think that's just really inspirational. And I think that it really points to the fact that you were able to figure out something that worked and felt confident in it. And one of the things that many students struggle with is knowing if the road that they're on and the plan that they've made, you know, months in advance is going to lead to the success that they want. And so One question I have for you is, how did you figure out that your strategy was going to work for you? I mean, what kinds of things helped you realize that you were on the right road? Does that make sense? One thing I'll say is, yeah, I think we all feel that way. And the truth is, you don't really know. You just have to keep moving forward. My experience was no different. There were bumps along the way, and there was plenty of things to complain and gripe about. But at the end of the day, like, Complaining only gets you so far and there's no golden road to knowledge. You just have to put in the time and effort. You have to just get down to studying. And if you're finding yourself in a situation where you're doing a whole lot of complaining and not enough studying, then 
you know, take a hard look at your approach because I do think that that's a common trap that we fall into. There's some therapeutic value in complaining or in commiserating, but you got to be careful with that. So I'll just say that one point, but I will say how I knew I was on the right track or how I knew how to make course adjustments was those practice tests fully simulating the step one experience as close to as possible was really important. Both the ones set up by my medical school and then I paid for a couple of the official tests as well as some of the UWorld tests. And I use those pretty strategically throughout just to make sure that I was doing well. I don't think you should put stock in one specific simulated test that, oh, this is the score I'm going to get. But I do think that there's value in the trend and understanding that you're trending in the right direction. You're still going to have days where you don't do as well, but I think that those are important guideposts along the way. Just to make some minor course adjustments along the way and say, oh, maybe I need to do less questions and more reading, or maybe I'm spending too much time reading and I'm not retaining enough. I need to take more breaks. You know, I think you can get a sense for that based on your progress. And that becomes really, really important as you're leading up to the exam. I think, you know, the last couple of weeks and months leading up to the test, I think, is when I really got in full on focused on step one mode. And that's when it really matters that you're on the right track. Everything else up to that point is just kind of building as strong a foundation as possible. At least that was kind of the approach that I took. So there's a lot of different approaches and the right one for you isn't always the right one for the next person. So I wouldn't stress too much over doing all the right things because at the end of the day, we all have to study hard. We all make mistakes in our study habits, but you got to do the best so that you can set yourself up for success and ultimately be a good clinician, be able to think critically and be able to take good care of patients and not losing sight of that, I think is something that should be mentioned as well. For sure. No, I think using tests as a way to kind of gauge how you're doing is a great way to assess, am I ready or am I not ready? And I think for someone like you, taking a step one practice test during third year can be you know, like if you do random timed setting in UWorld, you've already covered all the content. And so that's not an issue. You may have forgotten some of the content, but at least you've covered it. But for someone who's a first year, you know, that can be challenging. So you definitely have to be judicious in the way you use the practice questions, but you can certainly select topics that you've already covered and do a practice test that way. But yeah, it's a little bit tricky for someone, you know, like I remember just kind of looking back thinking, oh, I probably shouldn't use UWorld Neurology and UWorld MSK because we haven't had those subjects yet. If I get a host of 10, 15 questions on those topics, I'm probably going to miss all of them because I have no idea about that content yet. So anyways, I guess my advice would be to just be judicious in the way you're using the question banks, but they can certainly be really helpful in kind of gauging where you're at. Let's talk a little bit more about your dedicated period and how you used that time to really excel and do well in step one. So just to be clear, you finished up your didactics the first year and a half. What month would that have been in? Was that in like December, January? Yeah, so we, then we finished in December. We had a holiday break. We had a very brief orientation. Then we started on the wards in uh, beginning of January. Okay, so then you had a full year of doing your clinical rotations, right? And then after that, you had dedicated? I want to say midpoint of third year, we had our typical December holiday break for a couple of weeks. And then we essentially had the month of January and part of February. Our schedules were a little bit flexible. They gave us so many weeks off to accommodate for our step one and step two planning. So you could really pick the number of weeks that you wanted. 
leading up to that test. And I picked something in the middle. So one thing that I did was I requested to do my family medicine and internal medicine clerkships last. The reason I did that was our family medicine clerkship was a little bit lighter as far as hours. It also, I felt like, was more relevant to step one, you know, general medicine, things that I would encounter in family medicine, I felt like would be relevant for step one. And so I felt like studying for the family medicine and internal medicine shelves would be a good primer for starting into my dedicated study time. I realize not everybody can do that, but that was my strategy. And it was a popular strategy at my medical school. I think a lot of us had the same thought, but it seemed to work out fine for me. I will say though, that, you know, I had friends who did surgery and were on trauma and on some very busy services leading up to their dedicated time. And they seem to do just fine as well. So I don't think that's the only way to do it, but that was my approach. So I did a couple of rotations that I felt like would set me up well to kind of get into step one mode. And then if I remember right, when we got out for holiday break, I took, I think, three or four days and I said, I'm just going to take a break, enjoy my family time, enjoy the Christmas holiday, and then start the day after Christmas and study all the way through. So I think that was kind of what I decided to do. So it was basically December 26th up until I took the test. I'm trying to remember exactly the date that I took it. I want to say it was the end of January. And then I purposely left one week between the time I took the test until the time I had to go back. Because I think one of the best things I did for step one was planned a vacation with my wife with no kids, something that we could all look forward to as light at the end of the tunnel as a reward for sacrificing my entire holiday break, essentially, and most of my two years of medical school <laughs> up to that point. We felt like that was really important for us. I know money's tight and it was tight for us and we had to make a lot of decisions that way, but we decided that was an important reward for getting ready for step one. And I will say that for me, step one was a mind game. Keeping a positive, optimistic attitude was half the battle. And knowing that we were going on vacation afterward and that I really wanted to earn that vacation was a good motivator for me. You know, once you get done with that test, you feel like all the emotions possible and it was really nice to just like totally unplug go on vacation not have any internet not have anything to do with medicine to just really decompress after that experience and waiting for my score so that was how I approached the general 30,000 foot view of approaching the test in that dedicated study time I started it out with a practice test to see kind of where I needed to improve some and then I put my weaker areas first and then I put my stronger areas toward the end so that I would finish studying through all of the content about four weeks in. And then I'd have another week and a half to kind of go back a second time for the things I was weaker at. So then I would only hit the things I was strong at once. And then I could spend more time on the things I was a little weaker at. I spent most days, if I remember right, I would start with a block of questions in the morning, a pretty solid block of UWorld questions. And then I spent a lot of time reviewing those questions and making sure I really understood every concept in each of the questions. And then I would take a brief lunch break and then go back and hit reading, reviewing videos, and more general studying kind of in the afternoon. So that was kind of my daily routine. I also added into that, I mentioned before, I did quite a bit of running during that time. So exercise was important for me to stay 
sane. That was my daily routine and the overall way that I approached it. I mentioned before, I didn't always hit my goals as far as what I needed to get through that day. And sometimes I even finished a little bit early and could push forward. So I think a little bit of flexibility built into the schedule is good, but you definitely need to have a level of commitment and dedication to getting through it so that you stay on course. Yeah, that's a good explanation. And I like your approach. And I think that having that flexibility is super important. And it seems like you have this healthy mindset about everything. And I think what's really important is, and for a lot of students that succeed, it sounds like they just spend a lot of time after they do a block of questions in UWorld or any question bank, especially during their dedicated, is that they will take a lot of time to just make sure they understand the material and that they kind of see the details of what's going on with that question and those pathologies or any mechanisms and just get to the heart of it and make sure they understand that. During that time when you would do that, would you take notes on that or was it more organic and really just trying to understand it and not really worry about retaining it? Yeah, I kept kind of a running word doc or something similar of each of the questions and just write down the salient point that I didn't understand that led to me getting the question wrong. And sometimes there are multiple salient points within a question, but I would try to read the question more carefully and understand, you know, why did I get this wrong? Was it because I misread something? Because that's one issue. Or did I understand the question and I didn't understand the content? I would say a good number of the time, I actually found that I was getting questions wrong because I was either rushing and missing an important word or an important piece of information or just reading errors. I'm not a very great reader. And so I realized early on that I needed to really pay attention to those things, particularly at the end of banks, because I would get fatigued. So that was a trend that I kind of identified by doing that, by going back through those questions was, hey, a lot of times I know the content, but it's more an issue of not staying focused through the question or just not reading it accurately. You got to really take a hard look at why you're getting questions wrong. So you can figure out, is this a knowledge gap issue? Is this a test taking strategy issue or something else? You know, am I getting distracted? something like that? Am I somebody who's prone to going for the red herrings that they sometimes plant? You know, I think kind of breaking it down and being honest with yourself. So those are some trends that I kind of identified in that process. But if there were just frank knowledge gaps, I would just take a quick note, say, this is what I needed to take away from this question. And then I would review that document fairly regularly. I think that you could do that in the form of flashcards as well. I just didn't take the time to do flashcards. But that was kind of how I approached it. If there were specific content areas that I was really struggling in, then I would turn to other resources like reviewing the Pathoma videos or finding additional lectures or videos online to really clarify something. Then I would turn to those things if I needed additional clarification. I think that's great advice. I don't know if we've ever heard someone say it that way, you know, that you really need to identify like why you're missing the question. Because a lot of people, I think their minds go directly towards it's content, it's content, content. But in reality, there may be other reasons why you're missing the question, like not reading it properly or something along those lines. I totally resonate with that because I I know I've missed so many questions for reasons like that. It's unfortunate, but that's the nature of taking a test, you know. I had a really good tutor for when I was preparing to take the MCAT that kind of helped me identify that. So that was something I knew about myself kind of going into step one. But one of his suggestions that I found really helpful was if you're worried that you're getting fatigued or you're losing focus and you want to prove that to yourself, you can take a bank of questions and answer them in reverse and see if you're still getting those questions wrong at the end. So just pay attention to when you're getting those questions wrong. 
And if in a bank of questions, you're getting all of them wrong toward the end, it's probably not the content. It's probably something more fundamental than that, just about how you're approaching it. So that was a useful piece of information that I learned about myself that I could be extra cognizant of when I was studying and when I was taking practice tests. So just to kind of recap, sounds like Dedicated started around the end of December for you and you had about a month to prepare and you really focused on questions at that time, you know, went through UWorld pretty systematically and also in the afternoon, you would focus on doing some other stuff like pathoma or osmosis or first aid, kind of reviewing stuff like that. And then did you also use MBMEs during this time or had you already kind of used up most of them or what was your approach with that? Honestly, I don't remember fully, but the medical school paid for two. So I had burned two based on their setting them up for us. And then I think I took two more NBME exams. I don't remember exactly when I kind of mixed them in with the UWorld forms. And so I didn't put stock in one versus the other. I don't even remember the scores that I got. I know there was quite a bit of variation. I found that some of the NBME were kind of skewed towards one subject matter or another. And so they weren't great as far as predicting what my score was going to be and what it ended up being. But I mostly use those as just relative indicators comparing the various subject matters and what I needed to focus more time on. So it sounds like you most likely used one of the UWorld assessments or an NBME during that time and kind of reassessed where you were at. Is that right? Yeah, I probably did one a week, maybe one every two weeks of a full length practice test leading up to the exam. So I probably did like three or four during that five weeks of dedicated study time. Do you feel like that was helpful for your study strategy? Did you feel like it gave you somewhat of an indication of whether or not you were prepared? Was like UWorld or MBME more helpful or what are your thoughts about the different practice tests? In my recollection, the UWorld was more predictive of my actual score, what it ended up being. And the NBME, like I said, was a little bit more variable. I think that it's helpful, but I do think if you're going to take a bunch of practice tests, you really get the most benefit in that eight to 10 hours that it takes to go through that entire thing question by question and really understand the content. If you just take it, you look at the score and then you move on, I think you're really missing out on a lot of learning and it can serve a different function perhaps. It can serve more of a testing function just to test where you're at, but I use them much more as like a learning opportunity. So I didn't focus as much on like, oh, this is how well I'm going to do on the test. This is how smart I am. I used it as this is the content area I need to focus on. And these are the types of questions that I may encounter. And it's really easy to fall into just reading the numbers. And I was prone to that too. I would encourage people to to fight that urge to just read the numbers. You need to walk away, you need to go get some lunch, you need to go for a run and decompress or something because it's always stressful to do a practice test. But then you really need to come back and hit it hard and dissect the thing. I think that's where the value lies in those tests. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I remember talking to somebody who was about two years ahead of me in school and he is now in facial plastics, probably towards the tail end of his residency. And I remember him kind of freaking out after he got one of his MBME scores and went to one of the academic advisors. I was like, look, I'm super stressed. I don't know what to do. Should I postpone my test? What should I do? And this doctor in an uncharacteristic moment of niceness, I suppose, she said, let's look at your MBME 
score and like, okay, you're struggling with cardiology related topics. Just spend the next week just focusing on those. Don't postpone your test and you'll be fine. She gave him that confidence boost. Like, look, use this to guide your study and focus on your weaknesses. And he did. And it turned out great for him. And it's interesting. And I think sometimes we gloss over the fact that we can use those assessments as a way to really help you instead of just telling you what you're going to get. Totally. I have one other comment about that postponing the test. I think that's a really slippery slope, by the way. I just think it was really important for me to stay committed to that test date. And part of the way I was committed was I had a flight the next day. And so that was motivating. But, you know, I saw a lot of people who postponed their test date. And I would say more often than not, it didn't improve their situation or improve their score. I think there may be some small reasons to postpone a test. But Anytime people ask me about that, I really would hesitate to push your test date back unless you have a really compelling reason, you know, a big event that happened. I just think that staying committed to that date, putting everything into it is pretty important. Well, Andrew, you obviously did very well on step one. You got a 254, which is an excellent score. So congratulations there. And, you know, obviously looking back, it probably doesn't even matter too much at this point. You're in an ENT residency at Mayo and you're on to bigger and better things. So Congratulations again, and thanks for sharing all your great advice on what you did to prepare for that exam. Before we let you go, are there any last words of parting advice that you'd like to give to someone who may be studying for step one right now? Yeah, I think like I said before, framing step one is important. Understanding that it's an important piece of the overall journey, but it's not the end all. For some people, that score may be more important than for others as far as their overall application. So I think being realistic about what your expectations are, what your hopes and goals are, and really push yourself. Everybody gets to the point where they feel like they're not going to hit their goal. Everybody has that moment when they feel like they need more time. As I mentioned before, I'd really caution you to change anything that you're doing based on some of those impulses because everybody feels that way. I think staying the course, just keep working hard is kind of the antidote for that. I'm grateful for all the opportunities that I had. I had a lot of really great mentors along the way. I've had so many important patient encounters and experiences that have made the journey worth it. And I think cherishing those things is key to staying motivated and preventing burnout in our profession, whether you're studying for step one or whether you're getting ready for residency or wherever you might be. It's just remembering the importance of what you're doing and keeping that in context. Last thing I'll share is if anybody's ever needs advice or needs help, I like to be accessible. I like to help any way that I can. I have several social media accounts you can reach out to me through. And I'm always open to anybody contacting me about questions or mentorship or things like that, whether it's ENT related, residency related, or whatever else. I'm pretty easy to find with my unique last name, Andrew Goats. And like I said, I'm always willing to be a resource for people. Well, thanks, Andrew. We really appreciate your time again. And thanks for all of your your stories and your advice. And thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to go to our website at physio.com to check out our growing library of free step one videos. You can also find our physio group on Facebook to join our growing community of students preparing for step one. If you've been enjoying the episodes and have been getting value from the content, here are three easy ways that you can support us. One, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Two, leave us a review. To do that, just go to physio.com slash podcast. Three, 
find your friends who are in medical school or interested in medical school and tell them about the podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next time.